Section 12 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 11, American Founders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Alexander Hamilton, Part 3. I will not enter upon that unsettled question of a political economy. There are two sides to it. What is adapted to the circumstances of one country may not be adapted to another. What will do for England may not do practically for Russia, and what may be adapted to the condition of a country at one period may not be adapted at another period. When a country has the monopoly of a certain manufacture, then that country can dispense with protection. Before manufactures were developed in England by the aid of steam and improved machinery, the principles of free trade would not have been adopted by the nation. The landed interests of Great Britain required no protection forty years ago, since there was wheat enough raised in the country to supply demands. So the landed aristocracy accepted free trade, because their interests were not jeopardized, and the interests of the manufacturers were greatly promoted. Now that the landed interests are in jeopardy from a diminished rental, they must either be protected or the lands must be cut up into small patches and farms, as they are in France farmers must raise fruit and vegetables instead of wheat when hamilton proposed protection for our infant manufactures they never could have grown unless they had been assisted we should have been utterly dependent on europe that is just what europe would have liked but he did not legislate for europe but for america he considered its necessities not abstract theories nor even the interests of other nations how hypocritical the cant in england about free trade there was never free trade in that country except in reference to some things it must have and some things it could monopolize why did parliament retain the duty on tobacco and wines and other things because england must have a revenue hamilton did the same he would raise a revenue just as great britain raises a revenue today in spite of free trade by taxing certain imports and if the manufacturers of england today should be in danger of being swamped by foreign successful competition the government would change its policy and protect the manufacturers better protect them than allow them to perish even at the expense of national pride but the manufacturers of this country at the close of the revolutionary war were too insignificant to expect much immediate advantage from protection it was hamilton's policy chiefly to raise a revenue and to raise it by duties on imports as the simplest and easiest and surest way when people were poor and money was scarce had he lived in these days he might have modified his views and raised revenue in other ways but he labored for his time and circumstances he took into consideration the best way to raise a revenue for his day for this he must have somehow or other to secure confidence and credit he was most eminently practical he hated visionary ideas and abstract theories he had no faith in them at all you can push any theory, any abstract truth even, into absurdity, as the theologians of the Middle Ages carried out their doctrines to their logical sequence. You cannot settle the complicated relations of governments by deductions. At best, you can only approximate to the truth by induction, by a due consideration of conflicting questions and issues and interests. The next important measure of Hamilton was the recommendation of a national bank in order to facilitate the collection of the revenue. Here he encountered great opposition. Many politicians of the school of Jefferson were jealous of moneyed institutions, but Hamilton succeeded in having a bank established, though not with so large a capital as he desired. It need not be told that the various debates in Congress on the funding of the national debt, on tariffs, on the bank, 
and other financial measures led to the formation of two great political parties which divided the nation for more than twenty years parties of which hamilton and jefferson were the respective leaders madison now left the support of hamilton and joined hands with the party of jefferson which took the name of republican or democratic republican the federal party which hamilton headed had the support of washington adams jay pinckney and morris it was composed of the most memorable names of the revolution and it may be added of the more wealthy learned and conservative classes some would stigmatize it as being the most aristocratic the colleges the courts of law and the fashionable churches were generally presided over by federalists old gentlemen of social position and stable religious opinions belonged to this party but ambitious young men chafing under the restraints of consecrated respectability popular politicians or as we might almost say the demagogues the progressive and restless people and liberal thinkers enamored of french philosophy and theories and abstractions were inclined to be republicans there were exceptions of course i only speak in a general way nor would i give the impression that there were not many distinguished able and patriotic men enlisted in the party of jefferson especially in the southern states in pennsylvania and new york jefferson himself was next to hamilton the ablest statesman of the country upright sincere patriotic contemplative simple in taste yet aristocratic in habits a writer rather than an orator ignorant of finance but versed in history and general knowledge devoted to state rights and bitterly opposed to a strong central power he hated titles trappings of rank and of distinction ostentatious dress shoe buckles hair powder pigtails and everything english while he loved france and the philosophy of liberal thinkers not a religious man but an honest and true man and when he became president on the breaking up of the federalist party partly from the indiscretions of adams and the intrigues of burr and hostility to the intellectual supremacy of hamilton who was never truly popular any more than webster and burke were since intellectual arrogance and superiority are offensive to fortunate or ambitious nobodies jefferson's prudence and modesty kept him from meddling with the funded debt and from entangling alliances with the nation he admired jefferson was not sweeping in his removals from office although he unfortunately inaugurated that fatal policy consummated by jackson which has since been the policy of the government that spoils belong to victors this policy has done more to demoralize the politics of the country than all other causes combined yet it is now the aim of patriotic and enlightened men to destroy its power and reintroduce that of washington and hamilton and of all nations of political experience the civil service reform is now one of the main questions and issues of american legislation but so bitterly is it opposed by venal politicians that i fear it cannot be made fully operative until the country demands it as imperatively as the english did the passage of their reform bill however it has gained so much popular strength that both of the prominent political parties of the present time profess to favor it and promise to make it effective it would be interesting to describe the animosities of the federal and republican parties which have since never been equaled in bitterness and rancor and fierceness but i have not time i am old enough to remember them until they passed away with the administration of general jackson when other questions arose with the struggle for ascendancy between these political parties the public services of hamilton closed he resumed the practice of the law in new york even before the close of washington's administration he became the leader of the bar without making a fortune 
for in those times lawyers did not know how to charge any more than city doctors i doubt if his income as a lawyer ever reached ten thousand dollars a year but he lived well as most lawyers do even if they die poor his house was the center of hospitalities and thither resorted the best society of the city as well as distinguished people from all parts of the country nor did his political influence decline after he had parted with power he was a rare exception to most public men after their official life is ended and nothing so peculiarly marks a great man as the continuance of influence with the absence of power for influence and power are distinct influence in fact never passes away but power is ephemeral theologians poets philosophers great writers have influence and no power railroad kings and bank presidents have power but not necessarily influence st augustine in a little african town had more influence than the bishop of rome rousseau had no power but he created the french revolution socrates revolutionized greek philosophy but had not power enough to save his life from unjust accusations what an influence a great editor wields in these times yet how little power he has unless he owns the journal he directs what an influence was enjoyed by a wise and able clergyman in new england one hundred years ago and which was impossible without force of character and great wisdom hamilton had wisdom and force of character and therefore had great influence with his party after he retired from office most of our public men retire to utter obscurity when they have lost office but hamilton was as prominent in private life as in his official duties he was the oracle of his party a great political sage whose utterances had the moral force of law he never lost the leadership of his party even when he retired from public life his political influence lasted till he died he had no rewards to give no office to fill but he still ruled like a chieftain it was he who defeated by his quiet influence the political aspirations of burr when burr was the most popular man in the country a great wire puller a prince of politicians a great organizer of political forces like van buren and thurlow wheat whose eloquent conversation and fascinating manner few men could resist to say nothing of women but for hamilton he would in all probability have been president of the united states at a time when individual genius and ability might not unreasonably aspire to that high office he was the rival of jefferson and lost the election by only one vote after the equality of candidates had thrown the election into the house of representatives hamilton did not like jefferson but he preferred jefferson to burr since he knew that the country would be safe under his guidance and would not be safe with so unscrupulous a man as burr he distrusted and disliked burr not because he was his rival at the bar for great rival lawyers may personally be good friends like brougham and lyndhurst like mason and webster but because his political integrity was not to be trusted because he was a selfish and scheming politician bent on personal advancement rather than the public good and this hostility was returned with an unrelenting and savage fierceness which culminated in deadly wrath when burr found that hamilton's influence prevented his election as governor of new york which office it seems he preferred to the vice presidency which had dignity but no power burr wanted power rather than influence in his bitter disappointment and remorseless rage nothing would satisfy him but the blood of hamilton he picked a quarrel and would accept neither apology nor reconciliation he wanted revenge hamilton knew he could not escape burr's vengeance that he must fight the fatal duel in obedience to that code of honor which had tyrannically bound gentlemen since the feudal ages though unknown to pagan greece and rome 
There was no law or custom which would have warranted a challenge from Eschines to Demosthenes, when the former was defeated in the forensic and oratorical contest and sent in to banishment. But the necessity for Hamilton to fight his antagonist was such as he had not the moral power to resist, and that few other men in his circumstances would have resisted. In the eyes of public men there was no honorable way to escape. Life or death turned on his skill with the pistol, and he knew that Burr here was his superior. So he made his will, settled his affairs, and offered up his precious life, not to his country, not to a great cause, not for great ideas and interests, but to avoid the stigma of society, a martyr to a feudal conventionality. Such a man ought not to have fought. He should have been above a wicked social law. But why expect perfection? Who has not infirmities, defects, and weaknesses? How few are beyond their age in its ideas? How few can resist the pressure of social despotism? Hamilton erred by our highest standard, but not when judged by the circumstances that surrounded him. The greatest living American died really by an assassin's hand, since the murderer was animated with revenge and hatred. The greatest of our statesmen passed away in a miserable duel, yet ever to be venerated for his services and respected for his general character, for his integrity, patriotism, every gentlemanly quality, brave, generous, frank, dignified, sincere, and affectionate in his domestic relations. His death on the 11th of July, 1804, at the early age of 47, the age when Bacon was made Lord Chancellor, the age when most public men are just beginning to achieve fame, was justly and universally regarded as a murder, not by the hand of a fanatic or lunatic, but by the deliberately malicious hand of the Vice President of the United States, and a most accomplished man. It was a cold, intended, and atrocious murder, which the pulpit and the press equally denounced in most unmeasured terms of reprobation, and with mingled grief and wrath. It created so profound an impression on the public mind that dueling as a custom could no longer stand so severe a rebuke, and it practically passed away, at least in the North. And public indignation pursued the murderer, though occupying the second-highest political office in the country. He paid no insignificant penalty for his crime. He never anticipated such a retribution. He was obliged to flee. He became an exile and a wanderer in foreign lands, poor, isolated, shunned. He was doomed to eternal ignominy. He never recovered even political power and influence. He did not receive even adequate patronage as a lawyer. He never again reigned in society, though he never lost his fascination as a talker. He was a ruined man, in spite of services and talents and social advantages, and no whitewashing can ever change the verdict of good men in this country. Aaron Burr fell, like Lucifer, like a star from heaven, and never can rise again in the esteem of his countrymen. No time can wipe away his disgrace. His is a blasted name, like that of Benedict Arnold. And here let me say that great men, although they do not commit crimes, cannot escape the penalty of even defects and vices that some consider venial. No position however lofty, no services however great, no talents however brilliant, will enable a man to secure lasting popularity and influence when respect for his moral character is undermined. Ultimately he will fall. He may have defects, he may have offensive peculiarities, and retain position and respect, for everybody has faults. But if his moral character is bad, nothing can keep him long on the elevation to which he has climbed. No political friendships, no remembrance of services and deeds. If such a man as Bacon fell from his high estate for taking bribes, although bribery was a common vice among the public characters of his day, 
How could Burr escape ignominy for the murder of the greatest statesman of his age? Yet Hamilton lives, although the victim of his rival. He lives in the nation's heart, which cannot forget his matchless services. He is still the admiration of our greatest statesmen. He is revered, as Webster is, by jurists and enlightened patriots. No statesman superior to him has lived in this great country. He was a man who lived in the pursuit of truth, and in the realm of great ideas, who hated sophistries and lies, and sought to base government on experience and wisdom. Great were the boons which this pure patriot gave, doomed by his rival to an early grave. A nation's tears upon that grave were shed, oh could the nation by his truths be led. Then of a land enriched from sea to sea, would other realms its earnest following be, and the lost ages of the world restore, those golden ages which the bards adore. Authorities Hamilton's Works Life of Alexander Hamilton by J. T. Morse, Jr. Life and Times of Hamilton by S. M. Smucker W. Coleman's Collection of Facts on the Deaths of Hamilton J. G. Baldwin's Party Leaders Dawson's Correspondence with J. Bancroft's History of the United States Parton's Life and Times of Aaron Burr Eulogies by H. G. Otis and Dr. Knott The Federalist Lives of Contemporaneous Statesmen Sparks, Life of Washington. End of section 12.